All right, what's up, everybody? I'm Colton, and welcome to Navigating DeFi, a new podcast and newsletter that I'm starting this year. These episodes will usually cover a single project or concept in depth so that hopefully by the end of each episode or newsletter, you have the knowledge required to be a power user of the project covered if you so choose, or the knowledge required to understand the primitives underlying many of the projects in the DeFi ecosystem. Also, I'd just like to warn everybody in advance that I will be looking at my notes pretty consistently throughout this entire episode. So don't expect me to actually look at the camera or make eye contact consistently. I just literally cannot do it. I'm also aware that um, I may not have the best podcasting voice. So in the description of each episode, I'll provide a link to the associated newsletter, which will effectively be the show notes for that episode. And in each newsletter, you can find some of the resources I use to actually construct the podcast. And with all of that out of the way, let's just get into the episode. It seems appropriate that in my first episode of Navigating DeFi that I should cover Olympus DAO, which is one of the most interesting and controversial projects in the entire DeFi ecosystem. And I know there's a lot, of, a lot of resources out there about Ohm and Olympus already, but I think many of them focus on the wrong things or really don't paint the full picture of what Olympus and Ohm are trying to accomplish. Olympus DAO has also helped kickstart the use of quite a few financial primitives that I think will be important themes to understand as the space continues to evolve and as I release new episodes about new projects in the future. So we should make sure to cover all of these bases now. That way there's an archive of knowledge for everybody to reference in future episodes. Olympus DAO's goal is to create a decentralized reserve currency system that backs a free floating reserve currency called Ohm. So before we dive into the details of what that actually means, I want to take a step back and outline what a reserve currency is so that we can unwrap how Olympus DAO plans to fulfill that goal with Ohm. So in finance, a currency is usually considered a reserve currency if it's held in large quantities by banks, monetary authorities, and other you know, relevant institutions. And so some historical examples of reserve currencies might be the United Kingdom's pound sterling in the 19th and 20th centuries, and then a good recent example would be the United States dollar. So in other words, almost every bank or government in any part of the world is happy to accept the U.S. dollar and recognizes its value and hold it on the balance sheet. If we abstract that definition a bit more, we could just say that a reserve currency is a currency that a majority of people and a majority of relevant institutions consider valuable and would be happy to accept as payment. So with that in mind, we can better understand Olympus Dow's end goal for Ohm, right? They hope to create a system that backs a new type of reserve currency that is accepted as valuable by all of DeFi. To be more specific, Zeus, the founder of Olympus DAO, has actually stated that Ohm's goal is really to remove reliance on the dollar within the DeFi ecosystem by introducing Ohm as an internet-native reserve currency. So creating such a system isn't as easy as deploying some arbitrary token and then hoping that people see value in it. There needs to be other monetary and game-theoretic mechanisms at play. In the case of Olympus DAO, the system relies on various mechanisms that include protocol-controlled value, bonding, and staking, each of which we'll cover later in the episode. Before we get started on those mechanisms, I want to expand a bit more on Ohm as a reserve currency and what makes it different from some of the alternatives in the space. People often ask why we need Ohm as a reserve currency when we have something like ETH, which is the base asset of the Ethereum network. It's the most liquid asset in all of DeFi. It's also one of the most sought after assets in all of DeFi. And Olympus Dow would argue that while ETH is especially valuable and plays a key role in the DeFi ecosystem, it should be considered an asset, 
not a currency, since it's likely that ETH will continue to appreciate over time rather than maintain a stable purchasing power over time. So in that answer lies the goal of Ohm, right? Olympus aims to provide a currency that has a free floating value, isn't pegged to the US dollar, and remains relatively stable over time compared to something like ETH. Olympus aims to accomplish this with Ohm by making sure that Ohm is backed by sufficient value. So one of the things that's interesting to note about Ohm, as I've hinted at throughout this episode several times, is that it has free floating value. It's not pegged to something like the US dollar. And this is really important for understanding Ohm's underlying mechanism. So each Ohm token is actually backed by $1 in the treasury. However, tokens can't be minted or burned by anyone except the protocol. And the protocol only does the minting and burning in response to the market price of Ohm. So when Ohm trades below $1, the protocol will always volunteer to buy back and burn ohm and when ohm trades above one dollar the protocol will always commit to minting and selling new ohm so expanding and contracting the system based on the external market price but because the treasury must hold one dollar and only one dollar for each ohm every time it buys or sells it tends to make a profit right so it either gets more than one dollar for the sale of ohm when it needs to sell it or they spent less than $1 on the purchase of Ohm when they need to buy it back. So the fact that protocol holds $1 for each token allows us to say with certainty that Ohm will not trade below its intrinsic value in the long term. And this allows people to make investments with defined risk, right? Because the protocol can and will buy Ohm indefinitely below $1 until no one is left to sell. So we can guarantee that price floor. Now that we know how Ohm basically works, we should start diving into the underlying game theory and the underlying primitives. But first, let's start off with some of the game theory behind Olympus Dow because I think it's important to set a foundation for each of Olympus Dow's underlying primitives, which we'll discuss later. For those who are unfamiliar, game theory is the process of modeling strategic interaction between two or more players in a situation containing set rules and outcomes. So in the context of Olympus DAO, the primary game theoretic idea behind the system is the notion of 3-3, which you've undoubtedly seen on Twitter or some other you know, crypto medium. 3-3, as described by Olympus DAO, is the idea that if everyone cooperated inside the Olympus system, it would generate the greatest gain for everybody else. And they have this chart in the Olympus DAO documentation that applies a, a scoring system to certain actions where ultimately the sum of all positive actions leads to the greatest outcome. But I don't think it's too helpful in describing what 3.3 is actually trying to imply. Instead, I recently saw a Twitter thread where the concept of 3.3 was compared to blackjack. So within a game of blackjack, there's the house or the dealer, and there are individual players. And they're all trying to win a given hand, right? And so theoretically, inside the Olympus system, one can decide to be a dealer or really be on, on the same team as the dealer, so align with the house, or they can decide to be an individual player and compete with everybody else at the table. So throughout the game, players can make decisions that hurt the outcomes of other players in order to beat the dealer. But again, you could also align with the house if you so choose. And so a player might align with the house because the house will always win over a series of end games because the players have to ask first. So there's a built-in edge for the house in the game of blackjack. So really the idea behind 3-3 is that if everyone al aligns with the house, in other words, they align with Olympus Dow, 
it would generate the greatest gain for not only Olympus Dow, but everybody else. And so hopefully that example helps uh, clarify the ideas underlying 3.3, uh, but I may not be the best explainer. So if not, I'll be sure to provide resources for you all to check out so you can come to your own ideas and your own conclusions. Sticking with the theme of game theory, there are currently three actions that a user can take within the Olympus Dow system. Users can stake ohm, they can bond ohm, or they can sell ohm, each of which has different consequences on individuals within the system and on Olympus Dow itself. With these actions in mind, we can look at some example scenarios of what two people could do and the effect those actions would have on the protocol. If we pretend that you and I both own a little bit of ohm and we both stake that ohm, this is the best thing for the protocol and for us, right? Because we're buying ohm, we're staking it, and we're committing to the long-term success of Olympus. But we can also do something like I stake my ohm and you bond your ohm, which is also great because staking takes ohm off the market and puts it into the protocol and you know invests in the future success of that protocol while bonding provides liquidity and other assets directly to the treasury. So again, you're buying newly minted ohm and you're deciding to invest in the long-term success of Olympus by growing the treasury. So these two actions are both positive for us, positive for the protocol. But there are also situations such as when one of us sells, we can diminish the effort of the other person who is staking or bonding. So this is really like a, a net neutral scenario. It's like a zero sum scenario. Whereas we could also both sell and that would be the worst outcome for both us and the protocol because we're trying to compete with each other while also trying to compete with the protocol. So we're taking actions that are uh, net negative for everybody. While these ideas are very oversimplified and the dynamics will strengthen and weaken depending on a host of other factors, both inside the Olympus system and external to the Olympus system, they're merely meant to demonstrate the positive sum environment created by cooperation. So while cooperation inside the Olympus system is not required, the dominant strategies are all cooperative and not everyone agrees with these ideas. And some people see the Olympus Dow ecosystem as a much more complex game. I don't think it's worth going down that rabbit hole right now. So you'll just kind of have to take some of these ideas at face value. And with the basic game theory in mind, let's start exploring the various primitives underlying the Olympus Dow system. The first primitive I want to cover is protocol controlled value. And throughout this section of the episode, I might use protocol controlled value and PCV interchangeably. Just know that they mean the exact same thing. One is just an abbreviation for the other. But within the Olympus system, protocol controlled value refers to the assets owned by the protocol's treasury. And these assets are used for three primary reasons. Reason number one is to back ohm in circulation with at least $1. Reason number two is to provide a permanent source of liquidity for ohm holders, right? Reserve currencies require liquidity so users can enter and exit the market at will. And Olympus uses PCV to guarantee that liquidity. And reason number three is to generate more income for the treasury, thus increasing PCV. So PCV has this very nice uh, feature, I guess, where it can be used through various mechanisms throughout DeFi to actually generate revenue on itself, which is a net positive for the Olympus Dow treasury. Protocol controlled value is what sets Ohm apart from many other tokens in the DeFi ecosystem because it backs Ohm with intrinsic value. This also helps make it a prime candidate for a reserve currency because you can guarantee the backing of the currency, whereas with many other tokens, that's really not the case. And I found a post on Reddit by ghost underscore zero eight that describes how PCV can be further broken down into three categories, reserve assets, 
non-reserve assets and liquidity assets. Reserve assets are assets like FRAX, LUSD, DAI, and other stable coins that contribute to what's called the risk-free value of each ohm. So in other words, these assets can be used to conservatively estimate the amount of value backing each ohm in circulation. And so at the time of recording, that value is around $250 million or something like that. So users can actually guarantee that those funds will be used to explicitly back ohm. The second category is non-reserve assets. So these are assets that are more volatile and risky, like Toke, CVX, Xsushi, and others, which diversify the treasury, create inroads for partnerships, give Olympus-style governance power, and more, right? So these non-reserve assets actually play a key role in establishing OM's power as a reserve currency within the DeFi ecosystem. If you're aiming to be a reserve currency, you need to be able to have some power over the protocols that exist alongside you. Otherwise, you know, you'll just have to hope that people see value in whatever it is you're offering. The third category is liquidity assets. And liquidity assets are LP tokens such as Ohm DAI, Ohm Frax, Ohm LUSD, and others. These assets, as mentioned earlier, guarantee permanent liquidity for Ohm. And we'll talk about how they acquire them in the next section, but What's really important is that, that this liquidity allows users to enter and exit the own market at will. And since Olympus DAO owns the liquidity instead of renting it, like many other DeFi protocols, users can actually guarantee that there will always be liquidity to trade in and out of Ohm, which is a really unique property of Ohm itself and also makes it another you know, good example for why Ohm is really positioning itself well to be a good reserve currency. However, there's one caveat worth mentioning and it's that Olympus DAO's liquidity assets actually do contribute to the risk-free value I mentioned earlier. So the treasury can mint ohm against liquidity assets, not just, you know, single dollars or like DAI or LUSD or whatever. The only difference is, is that the risk-free value of these liquidity pairs are calculated at a steep, steep discount relative to something like just a stable coin like DAI. And I'll put the formula on the screen for the nerds out there, but there's no need to actually dig into uh, the details in this episode. I'll just make sure to provide resources for anybody who's curious about that calculation. So now that we know what PCB is, we should explore how Olympus DAO actually acquires these various forms of value through a mechanism called bonding. So bonding is the process of trading assets to Olympus DAO for newly minted Ohm. And the way it works is actually pretty simple. The protocol quotes an amount of Ohm it's willing to sell you, usually and preferably at a discount to market price, and then a vesting period for that trade. And in this case, vesting just means the amount of time you have to wait to realize the full value of the trade. So for example, if you bond $100 worth of die for discounted Ohm, you may have to wait 14 days before you can actually claim the full value of that ohm. And this just reduces unnecessary sell pressure. I mean, you wouldn't want a situation where you're selling ohm at a discount and then people can instantly dump that ohm on the market. So doing it this way actually keeps incentives aligned between the bonders and the protocol itself. The bond discounts are variable based on third-party demand and by design, which I think is a pretty cool feature, try to get the best deal for Olympus. So let's say a bond starts at a 5% discount. If no one takes the bond at that price, the discount will slowly tick down until somebody takes it. So it'll go from a 5% discount to a 6% discount, so on and so forth. But after someone bonds, the discount goes back up and can even flip to a premium. So this is what I mean by Olympus tries to guarantee that it gets the best price on, on these bonds. It makes sure that 
you know, if there's a lot of demand for bonds that it's not selling them too cheap for no reason. So for example, if there's a die bond at a 5% discount and somebody bonds at that price, the discount may shrink to, let's say 1%, for example. And if somebody bonds at 1%, then the discount will actually flip to, let's say a premium of 3%. And of course, usually no one will bond at a premium, which, cause they'll lose money on that trade. So the bond will then start to tick down in price from a premium of 3% until users can bond again for a discount, rinse and repeat. So these dynamics just repeat consistently across all bonds in the Olympus DAO system. Olympus also offers various bonds to capture various forms of value that then get added to the treasury to build up PCV. So anytime Olympus DAO wants to acquire an asset, either strategically or out of necessity, they usually spin up a bond for that asset, right? So each bond also has an associated bond control variable or BCV that allows the treasury to absorb certain assets at a desired pace. So if they, let's say they have a ton of die in their treasury and they want to absorb more LUSD, they can set a lower bond control variable on LUSD to ensure that they're absorbing LUSD at a faster pace because a lower BCV means a higher discount for bonders, which means they're more likely to bond, right? For the longest time, inflationary bonds have been the only form of bonds in the Olympus style arsenal. However, that may be changing soon as a result of a new governance proposal called OIP 76 that was set forth by the Olympus style policy team. So OIP 76 aims to introduce inverse bonds, which will work exactly like the current bonds, except inverted, right? And it's worth noting that these bonds will only be available when Ohm is trading below its intrinsic backing, which is different than the $1 backing we mentioned previously. So the intrinsic backing of Ohm is actually defined as the market value of the treasury assets divided by the circulating supply of Ohm. And the reason this is possible is because usually the inflation of Ohm doesn't outpace the inflow of assets to the treasury. So each Ohm ends up having this additional backing over $1. So an example of how inverse bonds may work is like, like let's say the ohm price is at $100 and its intrinsic backing is at $120. Inverse bonds will be enabled and regular bonds will be disabled and users will actually be able to sell their ohm at a slight premium to market value to the treasury. So the treasury is actually willing to pay above market price for the ohm because they have the money to back it. And it's important to note here that the inverse bond price in this example would not be able to exceed $120 because at that point it would be a net drain on the treasury. And so the idea here is just to make sure that people can exit Ohm if they so choose at the intrinsic backing or up to the intrinsic backing value. To sum it all up, bonding allows Olympus DAO to accumulate assets without selling Ohm directly on the market. It also allows them to spin up isolated markets for each asset they're hoping to acquire and then price those assets based on third-party behavior, right? They don't have to price these assets directly themselves. And so bonds provide this reliable source of liquidity that allows people to enter the system and when needed will allow people to exit the system through inverse bonds. You might be wondering, okay, well, what happens to the regular Ohm holders here, right? If, if, Ohm is constantly inflating through bonds, then how do I prevent myself from getting diluted? And that's where Ohm staking comes in, which I think is one of the uh, most misunderstood aspects about the Olympus DAO system. Staking is the primary anti-dilution strategy built into Olympus DAO. 
Stakers stake their own and then earn what are called rebase rewards. And these rewards come from the proceeds from bond sales. And these rewards can also vary based on the number of ohms staked in the protocol and then the rate set by monetary policy. Anytime a bond is sold, the proceeds of that bond are considered revenue for the protocol. When that revenue is generated, ohm is actually issued against the risk-free value of that revenue. And then the newly minted ohm is sold via bonds and distributed to stakers, protecting them from the dilutive effects of bond issuance. So remember, each ohm is backed by $1 of risk-free value. So anytime a bond is sold for, let's say, 100 ohm or $100 per ohm, excuse me, the treasury captures the premium and then uses that to mint more ohm, which is used to facilitate more bond sales and to reward stakers. This cycle tends to make staking rewards quite attractive, which you see people talking about all the time, thus reinforcing the premium, the premium of Ohm. So Ohm's premium to treasury value is a combination of one, the treasury value itself, its intrinsic backing, and then you know maybe the, the combination of staking rewards as well. Over time, as Ohm actually slows its expansion phase, which it's in right now and has been since its launch, we can actually expect staking rewards to go down as the rate of dilution goes down, right? It's easy to grow a supply from zero to 1 million. It's harder to do that from a million to 10, 10 to 100, so on and so forth. And since Ohm's launch, we've actually seen several staking reward reductions. And recently, the Olympus DAO policy team actually proposed a reward reduction framework based on the total outstanding Ohm supply. So again, as the Ohm supply continues to grow, we can actually expect the amount of staking rewards to continuously go down because the risk of dilution for individual holders will continue to go down as well. One thing that I wanna be clear about regarding Ohm staking is that it's not free money. This isn't the same as putting your stable coins into compound or a year in finance vault and earning yield on those. It's purely an anti-dilution strategy that guarantees that stakers won't lose their portion of the total Ohm supply, right? So. By choosing to be a staker, you're not opting into free money. What you're doing is essentially betting that Ohm will succeed in some capacity at becoming a reserve currency, and you're opting not to give up your ownership of the total supply, which is a viable strategy, right? If something is going to succeed as a reserve currency, you wanna make sure you capture all of that upside while not getting diluted in the process. Now that we've covered Olympus Dow's underlying mechanisms, we should walk through what Olympus DAO is doing to solidify Ohm's role as a reserve currency throughout DeFi, right? It's not as easy as spinning up a spinning up a token, creating a circular system, and then hoping people see value in it. You have to do something to actually bootstrap real adoption in the broader DeFi ecosystem. And fortunately, Olympus DAO has released a blog post describing what they call the three key pillars of the Ohm economy. There's the reserve pillar, which is responsible for Ohm's growth and utility. There's the liquidity pillar, which is responsible for increasing Ohm's liquidity and tradability. And then there's the utility pillar, which is responsible for increasing mass adoption of Ohm. The reserve pillar consists of products and offerings such as Olympus Pro, which provides bonds as a service to other DeFi protocols, allowing them to acquire assets to their own treasuries using Olympus DAO's bonding mechanism while paying fees to Olympus DAO for the service. There's Ollie's apps, which allows users to easily zap into and out of staking and bonding positions. There are V2 bonds, which will add more flexibility to Olympus DAO's current bonding mechanism. 
there's a project called Ermes, which is yet to be released and is a tokenized bond market, which sounds pretty cool. I'm looking forward to that. The liquidity pillar consists of efforts to bootstrap own partnerships and liquidity across various different blockchains. And this includes um, efforts like Proteus, which is the cross-chain initiative for GOM partnerships and liquidity deploying on Ethereum, Avalanche, Arbitrum, etc. There's goals to make OM cross-chain native, so they hope to fully implement Olympus branches with native tokens on all major chains. There's the OM debtor function, which will allow protocols to borrow liquidity from Olympus DAO, which is actually pretty cool. And last but not least, the utility pillar aims to increase the mass adoption of OM through the DAO itself, efforts like Olympus Give, which makes effortless donations, efforts like the Olympus Grant Program, the Olympus Incubator, etc. So while the full vision for the Ohm economy hasn't been fully fleshed out and is very much subject to change, it's hard to deny the progress that's actually been made by Olympus DAO in less than a year after its launch. And who knows, I actually might have to make another episode in the future covering Olympus DAO after we see what progress it's made and how the dynamics of the Olympus economy change as Ohm gets bootstrapped as a reserve currency throughout the space. We covered a lot of material today in a short amount of time around protocol controlled value, bonding, and staking, but I think these are crucial to understand as we move on to different projects in future episodes, so I'm glad we touched on them now. And that said, I've undoubtedly left out some information and nuance around these topics to make it easier to digest, so I highly recommend you do some supplemental research and look into these things on your own so that you can get a better grasp of how these things work. If you've enjoyed this episode, please feel free to subscribe to both the YouTube channel and the newsletter to ensure you don't miss any future episodes, and I will see you all next time.